okay. Sorry about that, that we can't have the cameras. Your profile picture is good, though, so I'll just pretend <laughs> that that's you. Well, you've got a pink, so I don't know uh, yeah. if I'm getting like, the right sort of... Mm. Well, I know, that kind of sums me up. Like, this little dude, he goes around exploring things, but then he also makes friends, but then he also gets into trouble. Mm. Kind of, that's what I aspire to. Ask, when did you start making Wombat Radio? Because it looks like it's been going for years and years. Hmm. <clears throat> um, it was in Jan- January or February, and I think it might have been, I'd, I mean, I'd have to check on the website, but I think maybe this is the fourth year. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's weird how that creeps up. At the beginning, it was um, sporadic. It was just whenever I was somewhere and somebody was interesting, I would ask them mm. to have a discussion with me. So I'm very much more interested in the discussion rather than an interview because um, mm. I'm trying to work out if I actually understand what it is that they are saying. Mm. Um, but then yeah. I guess last year it became weekly And that was kind of a challenge to myself to not just wait until it's convenient to have a conversation. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's an episode of um, uh, your podcast that I was listening and you said, oh, I don't know who you're talking to, but you said, oh, do you know these guys in New York that do something similar to what I'm doing? And It's called OK Radio. And at that point, I thought, oh, wow, Matt's been around for a long time because if OK Radio is your reference for podcast, like it was my reference for a theatre podcast or performance podcast, mm-hmm. then you're really talking about prehistory of podcasting. <laughs> But yeah. isn't it? It's the prehistory of yes. podcasting. I yeah. mean, they didn't even have a... They were not on iTunes or anything. They were just on their little website. Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure who put me onto that. I think it might have been a Sydney dude called Lee Wilson who runs Branch Nebula with his partner Mirabelle. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I, were they still going... Maybe four no. years ago? When did they, they stop? They haven't had an episode out in years. Mm. I did try, because I was in New York a few years ago because my girlfriend was performing her solo at Judson Church. And so I got in touch with them and I asked if they wanted to have a little come out of retirement and be on Wombat Radio. Uh-huh. <laughs> But they were away at the time. Oh, no. I know. It would have been so cool to be like, so why... Am I doing this if you guys have already moved on? (laughs) (laughs) But I wonder why you are doing it. Are they your reference as well? Yeah, very, very much. Mm. Um, I loved OK Radio when when I realized that it existed. I don't really know how I found out about it. It's quite possible that they were doing like a live a live show at a major arts festival in Europe somewhere and I was there and that's how... I found out about it and then I just went, you know, through their entire back catalogue and listened to all the episodes and I just thought, wow, this is, what luxury, you know, here we have two artists and for an hour, or sometimes like two hours because some yeah. of their episodes are so long, yeah. they're just talking about art. I mean, you never get that. You mm-hmm. never, you, you, at the time, so this would have been 2012, maybe uh, 13, the only time that a Perform, a performing artist talked about art 
well, you know, would be on a quick radio show or there would be like a quick TV segment and it would be maybe three or four minutes maximum. Yeah, and it's always about Describe when and where and how much. Yeah, yeah. And it's Sell never about Make- what and, and how, especially, and then why. <laughs> yeah, in three minutes. It's sort of like that, you know, um, those PhD slams, like yes. present your PhD in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> There's science ones as well, I think. Yeah, and they yeah, have, yeah. they call it the sparkler challenge or something because you get a sparkler, like a birthday sparkler, and they light it and that's the beginning. And you have to describe everything about your scientific research and before the sparkler goes out. But isn't it just so offensive to science, to research, <laughs> to art, to, do, to, to force people to do that? I think, um, uh, okay, I think this about steak, for example, I think it is offensive to kill a cow and then make with its death the real shitty, shitty cold sausages that you get. But I don't find it as offensive if it becomes an appreciated piece of well-prepared um, and presented and enjoyed uh, steak or I feel it or something. Like, I find these things totally different that it's not so much the the act of the destruction of the thing, it's then what comes after the destruction. How is it bettering the world? So, yes, yes, it is an insult. And then at the same time, if it is alongside rather than instead, mm. then I can see that it can have value. And I think um, it's up to us to exercise our luck for the resources that we have and direct them towards the gaps that are left and that's Mm. basically what we both do isn't it with our podcasts yeah i think so i mean you know i remember very strongly that sense of luxury Mm. i remember you know this was 2012 2013 it would have been one of those years and critically you know, my friends were being asked to write art reviews, or, you know, there were 200 words, 250 words, you know, no longer 600 or 700, which in itself would not, you know, is not really enough to talk about a work of art. Um, the art programs were shutting down. There was just this sense that, like, you have to justify every word and every second that you spend talking about art. And then in the middle of all of that, I just thought, you know what, what if we just really talked about it for a really, really, really long time? (laughs) Yeah, the thing that excites me the most by talking about it for a long time is that there are answers that people know how to give and that there are conversations that people know how to have. And once you exhaust all of them, then something else happens. Then the discussion or discussion as a tool becomes something that you can leverage towards further... um, unearthing of what it is that we're doing or what it is that that is doing or who it's for or who it's around and so for me it's like actually some people are very good at it and can begin straight away in the mode of let's have the discussion I don't know how to have but most people need to run out of Mm. polite conversation before that happens 
Exactly. And it's about the first maybe 10 minutes you're asking them questions and they're giving you these canned answers, these pre-prepared answers and you're mm. just sort of going, all right, you don't have an infinite supply of that. Hopefully. You're going to run out. I mean, that's, and that idea just comes straight from dance improvisation mm. or any kind of improvisational practice where you you task or you come up with the responses and you follow your impulses until it leads you to an unknown. But then I, I am reflective upon myself as well, how I'm operating in the framework of a discussion that is recorded, that is going to be broadcast. And I'm facilitating the connections that could be made and the summaries of what somebody has been speaking about. And then I get wary that I have canned connections and canned summaries and there are conversations I'm good at having because I've had practice and then other ones where I'm actually way out of my depth and I wonder how you work against that trap as well do you think of that of this podcast Wombat Radio as part of your practice or as a practice because I do Mm, I um yeah, it's. I think it's operating on a lot of levels, and I hope that one of the levels it's operating on is may is forcing me to put myself in a situation where I have to practice listening, and I have to practice listening because I'm formulating a question. I really want to ask a better question almost always um, of myself as well as of other people as of the podcast but then there's also this thing I don't know if you know this Australian actor Heath Ledger mm-hmm. and he I was doing a residency at the National Film and Sound Archive in maybe 2012 or something around a long time ago and um, usually they have recaps and they do a like a biography and a backstory on famous Australian actors and performers who have contributed to our multimedia culture and Heath just wasn't old enough before he died for them to start doing that Uh and so in the same way that at the same time that Wombat Radio is giving me a construct to form an ongoing practice of how to ask a better question and how to listen so that I can ask a better question it's also hopefully speaking to people before they are done like I don't Uh, want a reflective wrapped up neatly story of what somebody's career and life and practice and journey and discovery has been about I wonder like what are you now dealing with Mm. yeah you know it's really interesting I was thinking today how before you know performing artists today just don't write they as much as you know uh, we expected them to and this is obviously not true because very many actors directors so on didn't leave a, a written a single written word um, but you think about say Stanislavski and he's written a huge number of books as has Brecht you know as have many important uh, theater practitioners over time and that that part where you not just make something but you reflect on what you're making why you're making it how you're making it the ways in which you could be making it what does this thing that you've made do to the world with the world against the world it seems to me to be such an important part of 
a person's artistic practice something to really maintain as a kind of artistic diary, you know. Mm. I, I, the, before Wombat Radio, there was a book that I was putting together, which was all of these things that you speak about. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> it, it became clear to me that that is not... Well, uh, this became clear to me much later. First of all, it became clear to me that people who are working physically often don't have time to be sedentary and writing mm. as a sedentary activity and reading as a sedentary activity. And that goes, in my experience, sedentary activities go directly against embodiment. Um, so there was already that flaw in what I was trying to do, which is have people who are embodied and active stop doing that thing so that they can write about it and then so that I can put that together so that then other people can read about it. Um, but then that's why the podcast. But at the same mm. time, I don't think that the dancer, especially as the foot soldier of the arts mm -hmm. industry, in quotes, um, is, is made feel that it is their place to write or that it is their place uh -huh. to read and not only is it not their place that is not the medium that they've been trained in and it is not where they will shine um there's a show that was on australian television that i never watched but mm -hmm. <clears throat> it was like a interject like a battle between generations uh mm -hmm. 20 year olds and 40 year olds and 60 year olds and one of their key things they had to overcome was that the 20-year-olds will always look less accomplished because they've had half the amount of time to do mm -hmm. anything. But that doesn't mean that they are less intelligent or less aware or less interested. And so it's how do you give space and legitimacy to people who are working with physical embodiment and with senses and stories and ways of knowing beyond uh, traditional language to say that we don't, we're not going to measure the, the words that you use and the way that you structure them against somebody who that is their job to use words and structure words. Yeah. Um, we're going to listen to your words as some kind of other tool to get out these things that you're working with and you know in infinitesimally more intimate ways in other mediums. So somehow it's like forcing my peers in... in dance and performing to and sometimes music and sometimes acting and to forcing them into a situation where they are going to be listened to and so they have to step up and speak but then also giving legitimacy to that the practitioner is one of the best placed to speak on behalf of their practice rather than somebody who has better skills or better tools or more time in the form and the format and the context and the aesthetics of uh, critical discourse, but actually less embodied knowledge and insight into the practice that they are describing. Yeah. I have two things to say now, and they are unfortunately completely different and they take the conversation. <laughs> They take the conversation into two very different places, um, mm -hmm. but, so I can't quite choose which one to uh, go with. I'll go with Both. the maybe more obvious. Uh, <laughs> you know, I started, uh, I started seeing a lot of dance uh, when I was doing my honours thesis. Where, where was the dance happening? 
the dance was in Melbourne at mm-hmm. Dance House, mm-hmm. m- mainly at Dance House actually, because I was doing my honours thesis at Melbourne University in the uh, Faculty of Architecture. Do you know who was curating at that time? Um, at the, just the because man who was before Angela. Um, David? David. David Tindall? McAllister? McAllister? Mm, probably not McAllister, probably... Let me... I... Uh, his name just, was David for sure. Yes. Let me see. It's like um, my relationship with any venue is that if there is a curator embedded in that venue, then it is like a TV channel. And then no matter how many different shows I watch on that TV channel, it is all going to be within the agenda of that TV channel. Mm. Uh, I think it was David... Tyndall? Yeah, that sounds familiar. And how Thanks, did it David. go for you? Did it was it working for you to go to dance and? Oh yeah, very much. I mean, I was at the time. You see, I was uh, I was doing my thesis, which was about uh, the practice of fieldwork in geography and how it related to various kinds of immersive theatre. And I was also working in research. My actual day job was in the same place where I was doing my thesis, just on a different project. So basically, I would spend every day, all day, in front of a computer in the same room, uh, regardless of whether I was working for myself or for my employer. And I started going to dance house because I just needed to. Um, I, I needed to rest my brain. I needed to do something very, very different. Mm. And um, it was, and I was too tired to, you know, run or anything like that. Um, it was, it was really excellent. It was an excellent thing to do, and I found that I could think a lot better while watching dance. Yeah, me too. I find the same thing. Mm. And it's very, it's become very interesting to me over the years, you know, that the dance community, and not just in Australia, internationally, is a lot more is a lot better read than the theatre community and is a lot more open to philosophy and very kind of hardcore philosophy as well. You know, very abstract kind of hard stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So so it's very interestingly, you know, on the one hand, you have people that are basically trained in sort of glorified gymnastics and then the same people are reading very heavy books you know, and uh, discussing, you know, with sort of some of the preeminent philosophers of our time, and perhaps, you know, perhaps this dialogue is not, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a dancer doesn't come to a philosopher with ex- with detailed uh, philosophical questions, but comes with genuine questions. And, v- and very often a philosopher has interesting things to say about dance that are also not massively informed by an embodied practice. Mm. So I think it's a very equal exchange in an interesting way. Um, and it does seem to me that contemporary dance, contemporary dance is very philosophical in the questions that it asks. Tell, tell me more about that. Well, you know, when I... This, this is a conversation I was literally having earlier today with a friend of mine who's a theatre director and she was trying to explain to me why... She was asking me to 
tell her why I thought that a certain uh, contemporary Australian choreographer was no good. And <laughs> I'm not going to name names, but no, I'm saying, there's no need I was to name trying it. to say, well, this person, as far as I can see, this person doesn't have a process. Um, and or maybe even a question that that process could serve. Yeah, this person seems to be sort of mucking around every time they make a show. There's no continuity, you know, there's no kind of co co coherence of, pra of process. There is no continuity of questions and uh, therefore there's, she has no practice. And if she has no practice, she's not really an artist for me. And then I sort of stopped and said, you know what, I think this is the difference in rigour between contemporary dance and contemporary theatre in Australia that in contemporary theatre people don't ask these questions of one another. What are the questions? Well, what are you doing, why are you doing it and how are you doing it? <laughs> so basically what you and I do, we are holding the standard high by asking other people those questions and keeping them at the forefront of discourse. Well, I mean, I'd like to think that that's what we do. You know, I mean, you know, when I when I think about the so the choreographers, the sort of um, dance artists that I find, you know, particularly interesting, they are asking some extraordinary questions. You know, Prue Lang, for example, who um, uh, lives and works in Melbourne after many years with uh, William Forsythe, she makes works about you know the kind of finitude or infinity of space um, and time and memory I mean these are really really big questions to ask mm. um, you know Matthew Day who's a much younger uh, person but also an interesting choreographer he asks a lot of questions about uh, habit about how we relate uh, in an embodied sense. How do we relate to objects and people around us? And can we rethink that every single time again? And how much energy would that take? What does lot. that take? A lot of energy. What, um, <laughs> and do you think that they make good shows? Do you think the show is a good show or the show is a way to ask those questions and the questions are good questions? Because the they're two different good, things. The questions are good questions and they approach them with rigour and an integrity of uh, approach. Yes. And, and then the show important. that gets made that we yeah. then go and watch, is the show a good show? Not for them to. I'm just um, separating for myself in my mind that uh, sometimes the question is interesting and sometimes the show is good and those things are, don't have anything to do with each other sometimes. I think there are three components there. There is the, the question you ask yourself, so the end goal. There is the path that you take to answer it and then there is where you arrive, mm. your destination. And uh, any one of these three, three things can go wrong. So, <laughs> so true. <laughs> you know... You can answer an interesting question in a boring way or you can uh, set off in a really good direction and arrive, not quite arrive where you are meant to get to. Um, but I think, you know, when I started teaching uh, and I was teaching in urban design, I was not teaching in dance or anything like that. I was working with 
a more experienced architect who said to me, because I was very young, I was maybe 25, 26, and I had very um, strong ideas about what the students should be doing. He was much older and he said to me, Jana, you, you can only judge a student's work by what they themselves set off to do. You can't judge them by what you wanted them to do because that's not what they did. And is that the same for the choreographer that you were thinking about who's just doing whatever they want and just having a laugh? If that's what they set out to do, then they're succeeding at it? Or do you still, even knowing that theory, you still want more from that artist? I think uh, then it becomes... a. a more complex question. I think you have to <laughs> yeah. approach a work first from the perspective of what did the artist intend to do yeah. and did they achieve, you know, how are they going to do it and did they did they achieve that? And only after you've covered those areas can you say, was that actually worth doing? Mm. I sometimes um, have no idea over what timeline I'm asking myself whether something is worth it or not. Mm. Um, and so usually I just give myself the benefit of the doubt and hope that it will come of worth someday somehow to someone hopefully um, maybe that's a little bit letting myself off the hook but then I wonder within these practices of making things I wonder about our by running podcasts that and like providing that infrastructure, I wonder how we become implicit in the kind of conversations that are being had. Give me an example. Um, I hope that when I speak to an artist about their project and I ask them what they're doing, and then I follow that with a question of what is that doing? <laughs> then even if they've never asked themselves that, now they have because I have asked that of them. And so then I am becoming implicit in their process, especially if I'm speaking to them during process. And so I wonder how we can operate as implicits in what gets made and how it gets approached. Mm. That's well, a really I, interesting question, isn't mm. it? Oh, sorry, continue. No, that's mainly it. I was just going to make it more convoluted. <laughs> well, I th- no, I think you... I think that's a very, very good point to make. I think... I'm thinking now about many artists who will very automatically tell you what they're working on, how long, how long it is. You know, it's 60 minutes or, you know, it's got, uh, it's a two-hander, it goes on for two hours and it's about such and such. Um, it's about love, you know, it's about uh, contemporaneity, you know, it's about Deleuze. Uh, <laughs> because these are the questions that they are used to being asked. Yeah, and, and then if we are the people who are deciding on the questions, we're affecting that. Yeah. No, I think that's... that's. Um, it, I think it really... I mean, you, you, you can see... Or can you see? Um, <laughs> you, I'd like to think that yes. by asking certain questions, you do change... 
the way people do work in public and this includes performance you know by asking where are the women um, after a while you do achieve some element of gender parity in any given situation even if only because whoever's making you know like whoever's in uh, getting the numbers right sort of goes oh my god we're going to be asked where the women are so we better put some in you know <laughs> so yeah I, I don't I mean, I'd like to think that having a having podcasts has wields this enormous power on the art world. I sort of don't think that that's the case, but I, <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful? You know, mm, maybe if, to some extent it does. If you let yourself believe that it did, then what would be the best question to ask? Um. Well, you know, with audio stage. Uh, so just to explain, you know, Audio Stage has uh, is divided into these tiny seasons of five episodes each, and each season is about one question only. And the choice of the questions has always been more or less, what is that one thing that no one really wants to talk about? Mm. Um, and let's talk about it not just for an hour, but five times an hour. <laughs> and... Because obviously there's a reason why people don't want to talk about something. I would say that, you know, over time there are... When people don't want to talk about something, they will say either... How dare you ask that? You know, you can't say that. Uh, Or they will say, that's a boring question. (laughs) Which is unfortunate because a lot of the questions are boring in the world um but that yeah accusing the only interesting question as being the boring question is an unfortunate irony yeah and i mean we often say in uh uh in criticism that being bored by something is a very important sign that you are resisting information that boredom is a very, very important part of the viewing or spe- spectator's experience. It means that you're really being provoked in a way that you're not entirely clear on. Uh, when someone, you know, tells you that you bore them, you you can be quite sure that you're touching into a sore spot. You're touching somewhere that they don't want to go to. And it's the same when someone just kind of like snaps at you and says, you can't say that, you can't, you know, we can't talk about it. Um, this is, and I think it's precise that those are precisely the things that we should talk about. You know. Do you know what that is for you? Well, see, when. Okay, so when I said that, um, I think of uh, podcasting as part of my practice, my, my critical practice. I do a couple of things at the same time. I write criticism, I teach, I do research, I write in general, and I uh, I, pod- I make I make podcasts. And through these are all fairly kind of public activities through which I can ask certain questions and offer certain answers. And there were many times when um, I wrote or said or said in class something that was a very very controversial and it was almost never because I was trying to be controversial 
and I find that I've always found that very interesting that you know you uh, I have a thought and I say it and I immediately offend 20 or 30 or 100 people <laughs> and then I I sort of say oh I'm sorry uh, that I you know I I'm sorry why did I hurt you why and that why uh, is even, you know, it offends them even more. And so, so these become, so these for me sort of become these very interesting kind of challenges, you know. Something very, something very interesting has just happened here. People, you know, have been very upset. And I, and these are almost never, you know, it generally turns out that um, what's behind is, you know, some sort of unexcavated guilt, you know, or privilege, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, for example, in performing arts, people don't like to talk about money. They don't like to talk about how wealthy their family is. Or you know the privileges, the the financial privilege that has enabled them to work uh, in the arts. Which performing arts are you talking about? Because I find in dance that that's not an issue. No. No. Because. Um, uh-huh. I mean, I can't really elaborate without making sweeping generalizations, but the people that I sp- sp- spend time around, I guess. Um, are pretty are usually pretty aware that it is that they are, that it, they are lucky to be doing this thing that they are doing mm-hmm. and that it has cost them and the people around them so that this thing can happen hmm well that's that's very lovely it might <laughs> be no it's lovely it's also um not uh i would say not enormously common hmm. you know it's uh, money is one very very good topic to avoid if you don't want to uh, uh upset people uh another one is uh racism you know talking about Race and racism is a very, very good way to uh, 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 get yourself into all sorts of conversations that uh, sort of die in your hands. Uh, Agenda used to be one of them. It's not anymore. We've seen a huge change in the past few years. Um, Well, I do know a joke about gender. (laughs) I'd probably rather not hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Because that, yeah, because it is walking into a trap still, isn't it? It's walking into a minefield. Oh, yeah. Very, I think, yeah, I think very much so. Um, and... Uh, you handled that very well. Oh, sorry? <laughs> you handled that very well, that well, provocation. I, let me just, well, let me just say, you know, I have a, I, I teach... <laughs> And teaching is a very interesting arena, you know, because you have a particular duty of care when you teach. Mm. You know, you can't upset, you know, you can't have sort of massive kind of confrontations in your class, but then you have to, you know, I teach uh, performance theory and so we talk about this sort of stuff. And the race class, we do a three hour seminar on race, which is the one that always is the most upsetting. Uh, I would, you know, I give my students a pretty brutal text on racial representation to read, and then when they come to class, I say, okay, who here identifies as white? And, and um, 
the first I mean I had decided to do that on a whim without really thinking and then the first time I asked that it was this huge confusion in class because they were never asked that they were always asked what their ethnicity was but not if they were white then no one you know white is this invisible thing it's it's not something it's not marked as such you know and that's obviously the the, the definition of whiteness is that is it it's white it's it's tra- it's neutral it doesn't exist and you know when you um, sit in a circle of uh, people studying to be actors and you ask them to talk about race and they have to verbalize whether they think that they're white or not and it becomes about the roles that they think they might get later in their professional career and whether they might get cast as, you know, the protagonist um, or not. And it also becomes about how they're doing on dating apps (laughs) and whether they can play Hamlet or not. Um, And then people start to cry. And (laughs) there was one class when I had 10 or 15 people in a row crying you know, um, because they'd never they'd never really spoken to their peers about uh, uh, how you know how they feel very sort of racially marked in Australia. Um, that really sort of gives you a sense of how charged certain topics of conversation are, you know, and, and charged in a very particular way in the performing arts. Now I don't know how it is in dance. I actually think dance is a lot. You know, light years better in terms of uh, racial diversity uh, than theatre. Well, um, yes and no. In I'm trying to get a project off the ground at the moment that is dealing with folk dance because uh-huh. I have no folk dance, but I grew up in Darwin around where a lot of my friends race is very spoken about in darwin Mm. because it is not melbourne (laughs) (laughs) um basically and there is no like there's so few people that are living so interconnectedly because it's not such a big town you can't have suburbs of different ethnicities and there's definitely racial profiling and privilege but it's it's not it's no it's never an undercurrent it's always at the forefront Mm. um the b-boy crew that i was in growing up in darwin i was the only white guy and knew that i was the only white guy because i sweated more than everybody else when we did our break sets in the mall in the 35 Mm. degree heat because genetically i'm less acclimatized even though i was born there Mm. um so there's things like that i think that the more distanced you are from something, the more that something becomes theorised, the more that it is a concept that conversation happens around rather than an experience that is lived, then the more there is righteous indignation and the more practised defensiveness can become because Mm -hmm. you are operating as groups of people rather than as an individual trying to make your way. And it would be different in any other context in any other part of the world. My friend who is visibly Chinese and English looking gets far more 
um, attention on his Tinder profile when he's on tour through Sweden because of his Chinese look. Mm. And that, so it is not enough to say that white people are at the top of the pyramid in all situations, in all parts of the world. I think that is a, a irresponsible and non-nuanced conversation about the fact that our world is connected and mobile and some of us have more mobility than others because some of us are shitting on others and we don't need to. But at the same time, I don't think guilt or outrage assists in the process of getting beyond that. I think uh, exposure to the differences of different peoples in different times as well as different places is what gets us to the... Um, it gets me to the point where I realise that everything is such a tangled mess that I'm just going to have to try and work it out for myself. This is a brilliant conversation. Can we? Are we allowed to continue this? I mean, I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm having... Uh, yeah, I don't, like, don't want to uh, 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 go into sort of in, insensitive territory, but I'm finding this very, very interesting because... Um, I come from I come from Croatia and mm. I come from a particularly sort of multi uh, lingual multi ethnic part of Croatia. Yeah. Um, so I speak three languages and it is a bilingual area and also I grew up during while when Croatia was in a particularly nasty ethnic war. And as a consequence of that, uh, uh, it's sort of uh, it, it, these things are spoken about. Mm. These things are spoken about the same way that uh, anti-Semitism is spoken about in Germany, you know, like as something that you sort of just need to always, you need to constantly air it out. And I, I also come from a part of uh, uh, Europe that is particularly mixed, you know, um, and where how someone, what someone looks like is not particularly related to what language they speak or uh, what their whatever ethnic makeup might be or anything like that, just because of how mixed the area historically has been. And so for me, coming to Melbourne, it was particularly interesting to find out that race was a, tab a bit of a taboo topic, you know, because I, I had not considered it to be one. I thought, of, you know, this is something that we just talk about. Yeah, same. And it's um, something that I, uh, what's the word, am consciously aware of not becoming afraid of when I'm teaching in a physical sense, in a physical technique class, is that, mm. is that um, there are physical characteristics that we are supposed to be aware of and then others that we are supposed to be blind to and I yeah. don't think that ever works and I remember distinctly when I was uh, 14 and I was doing this after school activity of army cadets and mostly it was just an excuse to go on camps with a bunch uh -huh. of friends it was very fun but you also got trained in um, radio communications and first aid and all these sort of fun things and one of the training officers that we had from one of the uh, groups was very specifically um, recognised that different that uh, throughout all of the teenagers that were there, now I guess there was like 70% boys but there was enough girls as well but 
I remember something him saying and not beating around the bush about this because his class was to teach us camouflage and concealment in the bush. And he very specifically said, do not think that you only need camouflage if your skin is a light color because any block color of any gradient, like of any, sorry, Mm. shade will stick out and be a shape that will become a target. And so when he's teaching in a professional setting within the military, he has to be not blind to pigmentation, but hyper aware of and instructive in the course of somebody's safety. Mm. And I find this is also the case when I'm teaching in uh, dance classes, that there Mm. are some things that I can champion, like people's strong thighs, for example, Mm. (laughs) and then try and reframe that that is something not to hide or be blind to, but to see how that you can um, use and direct towards the abilities of the group that were not there beforehand. And this is what I found in in the b-boy crew in darwin is that there were flyers and predominantly they were philo because the philo boys in the crew sorry the filipino boys in the crew were lighter than the indian dude in the crew and definitely than the white boy in the crew yeah so there's like i understand that there are things that are practiced but this uh this like encouragement towards blindness no i think you're really i think i think you you make a really really great point sorry should i let you finish absolutely not i think i'm a little bit on a rant because i've got a good listener which Uh is you well, well, okay, but see, this is the thing. We um, there's a, a fantastic man uh, in Melbourne, I think, at Melbourne University called Gassan Haj, who um, founded an entire discipline called Whiteness Studies. Um, and this is the person that uh, I've used in teaching and that I've read a lot of, you know, uh, through the over the years. And what I really liked about him is that he turns the question away from, you know, the question of race. He turns it away from the non-coloured people and he or like this sort of like people that are deemed inferior according to whatever you know in various various contexts at various times and he sort of goes well what does it mean to be white especially since you know different countries have different uh uh understanding of race and he comes to this very kind of interesting idea that white is invisible like white is whatever is invisible it's it's to be white is not to be of a particular shade you know it is simply to be the default whatever the default is Mm. and do you think if we went to um so well what what that means is that in a very uh, mixed place like where you grew up, where I grew up, or in Hawaii, you know, uh, or in Brazil, white is a much bigger term yes. than in a place that is very insular, that's isolated, you know, where everyone's been kind of intermarrying for a very long time or, or where there are very strong uh, inf- and enforced uh, uh, what you call it, uh, barriers between people mm. of different skin colour. So it's it's a it's not a biological uh whiteness is not a biological um feature it is very much a cultural feature and where do you feel like in the world that you've been that you stand out i'm definitely not not white. white where here 
in Melbourne. Yeah. I'm, yeah, no, not at all. Um, I'm mm. very much, you know, I'm very white when I'm in my hometown in Croatia where mm. literally no one looks at me. But um, uh, my embodied experience of living in Melbourne is not that of a white person. Um, I have to spell my surname all the time. I have n- never gotten a job when, it, when, when people only knew my name. Uh, you know, because I had to submit a piece of paper with my name on it. Uh, I constantly, uh, just about a month ago, I had an encounter with the police and one of the first things they said to me was, what's your nationality? Um, and I said, Australian. And they said, no, no, what's your, where's your family from? What's your heritage? It had nothing to do with the situation. I was really quite shocked by that. Um, should I go on? <laughs> no, I believe you. I'm sh- I'm surprised, but that's oh, not well. sad. I believe you. I definitely believe that that is what's been going on. But you know, and these are the sort of things that will come out when you ask people if they if they identify as white. Yeah, you know, right. um, and it doesn't. But as I said, it very much changes. You know, when I'm in uh, Croatia, I'm white. When I'm in uh, Germany, I, no. No, when I'm in Germany, I'm not. When I'm in Germany, I'm part of the sudden European uh, immigration, you mm. know. Uh, it, so, you know, when I'm, when I'm in Italy, though, I'm white. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, what, I, what I think is interesting about what you said about having to be blind towards about certain things and having to see certain other physical features of a person like, you know, how strong they are yeah. or how light they are and how problematic that is like from a completely kind of uh, ob- objective point of view is that uh, race is whatever physical characteristics we assign some other value you know, not just descriptive. So it's not just, oh, you know, you have a slightly darker skin, but you have a darker skin and you're criminal and you're dumb, you know? Mm. You know, I don't know what that policeman wanted to establish when he asked me what my nationality was. I think Victorian police have a pretty good (laughs) reputation for being about 50 years in the past when it comes to humanising the people that they speak with. I know, but, I mean, consider that, you know, consider that situation just for a second. I mean, he obviously thought that this was an important piece of information that would help him establish whether he had a a case on his hands, you know. Mm. So, obviously, there was something about my nationality that he associated with non-neutral, you know, like with my, I don't know, indicator of criminality or something. So, these are the... These are the the links that make racism and uh and you can't you can't enforce blindness on you don't kill that by saying let's pretend that that's not there but you do kill it to a large extent by talking about it i think yes yes and i think the other side of talking is listening and i think that people will only listen if they feel safe Mm, that's true. And it, it is not enough for groups that have felt persecuted to rise up and suddenly have an empowered and aggressive voice against their persecutors 
also the people who have been persecuting them or who have inherited by being born into that group that history of being on the side of the people who are persecuting they need to to so that they can listen and so that we can actually achieve forward movement mm. they need to not feel attacked because as soon as one is attacked one becomes defensive and d- digs their heels in and so i have i don't know how to solve this thing but the, I, the global racism <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> yeah, pretty you're it's, right it's, it's pretty big but no even at a very personal level if i am to bring up with um <sighs> it is hard to have someone who doesn't have to listen to you because they're in the position of power stay and listen to you if you attack them. And so there has to be a way to have a conversation that is not hoping to induce guilt. Is my opinion of how to move forward. I try to do that all the time. How do you propose? No, no, no. I have no idea. <laughs> but it's a very that's something that that I think is very important to try to do. I really do try to do that all the time because I agree with you. It's impossible to um, have a dialogue if guilt is involved. Yes. Yeah. There is nothing because guilt always is in some way coupled with shame, and shame is one of the most yes. powerful human emotions, and it's the one that makes people um, people will do a lot of things to avoid feeling shame. Yes, I hate that shit. So how do we how do we do that? I mean, I really spend a lot of time thinking about that. How do we create a space free of shame and guilt, and also you know free of violence, where we can talk about certain things, so that certain conversations can move forward, so that practices can move forward, you know, so that we can embody the world in a, a, a better way, safer way, friendlier way. I don't know the answer. But I also think about it and 